We're here in Colorado and I'm visiting Emerging Objects. We just saw a whole day of printing. It was fantastic. Thank you for allowing me to come out here and film your work today. Yeah, absolutely. So can you explain a little bit of what, what did we see today? So we saw 3D printing with a natural earthen material that we call adobe here in the region uh, at the Frontier Drive-In, which is a historic drive-in that um, began in the 50s and had been abandoned for several years. And so it's part of this uh, introduction of innovation and tradition, as Adam was mentioning earlier, here on this site. I saw two years ago you were printing uh, just one cylinder with emerging objects. Um, I now know, after meeting you, that that's your, your home that your family's lived in for a very long time. You're, you're local to this area, right? Right. I've been here all my life. Not just you? Not just me. My parents, my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, we've been here for a very long time. And living in very traditional ways, um, I, I uh, was just thinking recently that I was born the year that my mother got electricity for the first time in plumbing. And so when she got married, she got electricity and plumbing. She had never had it before. And so this is a place in the world that still uh, is very much connected to past traditions and has been kind of an island um, disconnected from technology. Uh, and so it's interesting to think that I'm bringing this technology to this landscape and combining it with those traditions. To make it uh, not better maybe, but it lasts longer, longevity. I mean, is Adobe still uh, happening often? Adobe is still happening, there, and I think there's a resurgence of it. There's mm -hmm. a movement amongst a lot of young people who are interested in the traditions of the past that have been, uh, that started to be lost, and so they're revisiting these and returning to them. Um, but I, I don't think the technology is necessarily improving it. I think it's doing something different with it. I often like to say that I'm working with the most advanced building technology and the most primitive. The most advanced building technology is the adobe, mm -hmm. which humans have been working on for 10,000 years and refining and making it better. And the most primitive is this brand new one that we have a robot that's only four years old and that still has lots of kinks and lots of things to be worked out with. So it's the combination of those two things that are making something new here. That's a fun one. Yeah. So your vision for this technology, what drives you to be working on it and trailblazing? Because it's not easy to do things people haven't done before. Mm. Well, there's a lot of things that drive me. And one is that I have a, a deep fascination for the material. And I've traveled all around the world just to look at buildings made of earth. To Yemen, to Peru, uh, throughout uh, Latin America, even in the United States, and looking at the various ways that earthen technologies are employed. I even wrote a book about it called mm -hmm. Earth Architecture. Um, so that fascination drives me. I'm just interested in that. And it happens to be that about 20 years ago, I became very interested in 3D printing. And I was printing small things, and I was excited about it. It was very expensive then. And I started thinking about how maybe I could make my own materials. And that led to a huge array of experiments. Um, it led to a company called Forest, where we 3D print wood. 
um, lots of different experiments, but always behind the scenes, I had this desire to 3D print Adobe. And about seven years ago, I started those experiments by 3D printing in clay. I first tried to build my own 3D printer with clay at the university with some students, and that didn't go very well. Why not? <laughs> well, 3D printers were just really, it was a really difficult endeavor. And I think there had only been one other um, group that had made a 3D printer with clay. But then not long after, there was a lot of people, and I saw one person who was making a printer that I thought really had some potential. And that was uh, the folks at 3D Potter. Mm -hmm. And they were making one where you were extruding a full body clay. So it wasn't a liquefied, watery clay. It was just actual clay body. And I was one of the first people who purchased one of their printers. And I started quickly making lots of wacky things with it. And it kind of caught fire because people hadn't seen prints that looked like these odd curvy loopy shapes before. This is a small format clay printer? It's a small format clay printer. And the desire, my desire was that those early experiments were ways to think about how I might print large scale mm -hmm. Adobe. Um, but that took me on a journey also in the ceramics world, which I never had imagined would happen, but the relationship with me and Danny at 3D Pot grew to the extent that one day I proposed to him an idea I had for a printer that was portable, that was lightweight, that you could plop down anywhere, that was really robust, and asked him if he would be interested in helping me make one. Sure. And he took it on as a challenge, and that's the Scara robot that we're using today. So you helped him design this printer? Yes. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, he, he has, he's the master of making machines, but I conceived of a printer that could spin around itself and basically be portable and lightweight. And so we went through a few iterations mm -hmm. early on, but this one um, stuck for a lot of reasons. The mathematics for scaras were already in place because scaras were a type of robotics that existed for a long time. Um, we use we use standard off-the-shelf uh, chips for running the printer, and it's run by Wi-Fi, controlled from the phone. So there's a lot of reasons why this works very well here. And this will be the largest printed Adobe structure on the planet once it's complete? As far as I know, um, I don't know the size of... Tecla. Tecla, but... From what I can tell, it's about the size of Casa Covida, the project we made last year. Mm -hmm. And Casa Covida, even though Tecla is two, they're larger. Um, Casa Covida has three spaces, and they're, they're slightly smaller. So I don't know the comparison there, but this is eight. This is where Casa Covida yeah. has three silos, this has eight silos. And so um, I don't think there's any project that I know of that's planned or has been built that's this large made out of Adobe. Are they the same silos? These are all identical silos in terms of their form. To Casa Covida? Oh, no. They are different in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. um, they're different in terms of their pattern, um, the texture that's on the outside, but they're also different in terms of their thickness. So Casa Covida has uh, two three-inch diameter extrusions mm -hmm. that touch and there's an airspace between them where this is a monolithic 
nine inch wall. So it should last longer? It should last a really long time, yeah. Provide more or less insulatory value? Uh, Earth doesn't have a very good insulation value. Mm -hmm. um, insulation is measured, um, it's often thought of an R value. And yeah. that R value is based on an inch of wood and the porosity and air that exists within that inch of wood. And so insulation is fundamentally air. Yeah. And this is a mass that has no air. So what makes Adobe perform very well is that it has a, it has a thermal mass characteristic. Mm -hmm. So it absorbs heat very slowly and it releases heat sl very slowly. It absorbs coolness very slowly and releases it. So even during the hot day, you can enter these, even though they're not roofed or weather tight, and you can feel the coolness of being in that space that it's mm -hmm. radiating, that's emanating throughout the day because of the temperatures at night here. That's interesting, almost like the quality of being in a cave, it's always 55 degrees. Exactly. Um, in the high altitude desert, there's such big temperature fluctuations, so mm -hmm. having that massive structure uh, it keeps the t temperature more homogeneous. And you can tell when you're inside, it's cooler. Yeah, so today it went up to 89, which is a hot day here in the valley, but last night I think it went down to 46. Mm -hmm. So that 46-ness is radiating in the space on the inside right now. Do you have improvements in mind for your third printer iteration? Um, for the third printer iteration? Size or different uh, functionalities you'd like? Well, one thing that we do is we move the printer around quite often because it's portable and that's the idea and we, we place it in very particular mm -hmm. positions so that it can start where it left off. Um, I could imagine a printer that's moving on rail that would be helpful. So. For Casa Covida, there was a line, and we actually made a, a plywood and wood rail. We just moved the printer ourselves. But if the printer could move itself along that rail mm -hmm. and have a fourth axis, then it would be much more robust and we could print a much larger area. Graduate from cylinders to freeform. Yeah. A lot of people ask me, why are all your projects circular? And it's not because I have any fascination with the circle, but that's the largest thing I can print. And because I'm trying to print big and demonstrate that I can print big, I'm just maximizing it. So if I printed a straight line or a square, it would be smaller. And one of the experiments was simply moving from a circle to a square. Mm -hmm. uh, There's a name for that structure. I forget what it's called offhand. Yeah, I forget what it's called. But it's uh, another way you drew a connection to the local region with the circles. You were talking about the local farming. Right. So we're surrounded by center pivot sprinklers and so center pivot sprinklers draw water from the aquifer and they spin around and they irrigate these large um, agricultural fields mm -hmm. with potatoes and wheat and alfalfa are mostly grown here, canola. So if you look in an aerial photograph of this site, you'll see we're surrounded by hundreds of them. And so there's an interesting parallel between these sprinklers that move all around and deposit water on the land and the printer that spins around and deposits earth. What do you see the, this region that you're so connected to over time? How do you want it preserved or is it something you even feel you can control at all? Um, well, I think that this is a landscape that has been difficult to occupy. And it has never been permanently occupied. We're at 8,000 feet, it gets 25 below zero. Mm -hmm. It's the traditional lands of the Ute, the Kiowa, 
Apache, the Pueblo people used it as seasonal hunting grounds, but very difficult to inhabit year-round. And so even to the present day, it's very difficult to inhabit year-round because of that cold. And I, and I think it is the weather extremes that have kept this as an island, as a, mm -hmm. as a, as a cultural island uh, in many ways, and a geographical island. And so I think there are interesting things to preserve, and I think there are interesting things to build upon. I'm, I'm interested in continuing the traditions of building an earth, which have existed here for a very long time. The first um, permanent settlements here were in earth uh, in the early 1800s. You say here, this region? In the San Luis Valley. Wow. So every time I talk about here, I'm talking about the valley. It's yeah. the San Luis Valley, which is surrounded by these 13 and 14,000 foot mountains. Um, and so those are the first permanent settlements. And so that tradition is coming from New Mexico, uh, which comes from Spain, which comes from North Africa, which comes from Egypt. So there's this long tradition of building an earth that has spanned 10,000 years. In the last 150 years or so, that has changed across the planet. And so I'm interested in continuing to think about how we as human beings on this planet have really an evolved way of building with Earth and how we can continue those traditions. But it has to respond, those traditions have to respond to contemporary lifestyles and contemporary society. And I'm not claiming that this project does it, um, although it might do it in some ways, um, but it's very different than the space we're in right now, uh, which is, uh, you know, we have a concrete floor, we have shooting rock walls, we have uh, lacquered finishes. And so I, I think the, the evolution of this work in terms of design work that needs to be done is about thinking about how this material can be more responsive to the way people want to live in contemporary uh, society. Yeah, certainly bringing um, Adobe, presenting it in a way that's really appealing for people. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, is it challenging to get a mortgage for an Adobe structure? Um, apparently sure not. I've, I've mortgaged like three <laughs> Adobe structures and houses that I mm -hmm. have purchased over my lifetime. I mean, Adobe is much more common than people think. Yeah. I was just in Oaxaca for 10 days. That entire city is made out of Adobe. Uh, it's a colonial city, of course, but there are contemporary cities around the world that are made out of Adobe. And I, I think it's just the questions about, you know, what, what does society desire from the way they live? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that has to do with space and the size of space. And sometimes it has to do with the quality of space that exists. Um, that could be a product of the space itself, but the, the shape of the space, the form of the space, the way that light comes in. And sometimes that has to do with the, um, like the provenance of the materials. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, like, where do the materials come from? And, and what, what is their life cycle and their value? And I think that earthen buildings can respond to all three of those things and more things that people demand from the way they live and work and worship and store things and, and everything you do in architecture. There was another group, you mentioned you're a professor at Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, another group in California, uh, contour crafting from back in the day. Mm -hmm. Did you ever run into them? 
I, I did. I actually know uh, Berkov Kushnevis, and we actually traveled in Thailand together wow. for a while, and we rode elephants together, and we it was it was a lot of fun. And he's a really great guy, and he's you know as as you know he's kind of the grandfather of 3D printing, and so he's done a lot of work. And he was actually an inspiration for a lot of the work I was doing. So when I was starting this project about I would say I started this in 2007 mm -hmm. to, with the desire to 3D print an Earth. And I had done research on his work. And what I discovered was that his desires were to print in concrete. But what he was actually doing was printing in Adobe. He was printing in clay. So if you read all his early papers, you know, he recognized that the machines are going to get clogged up if you print in concrete. There was all these problematics yeah. with it. And because he's Iranian, he understood those traditions of, of earth construction and he was making his early prototypes out of clay. And I said, aha, he's already doing it, but his aim is not to print an earth. And my desire was to print an earth. Does he still print? As far as I know, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but I know he began to innovate this new technology that he had formed a startup company around in Los Angeles, but I haven't talked to him for a while. But, you know, what's both fascinating and maybe slightly unfortunate is that all of the companies that are 3D printing concrete today are building upon his innovations. And, um, but his own innovation and inventions, uh, I don't think he's, he's doing. So he, he kind of gave birth to this huge movement um, across the world but I, I haven't been in touch with them, so I don't know what he's up to. Well, they aren't perfect yet, so they still have a lot of inventions along the way to get to uh, yeah. uh, the ultimate stage. As I'm sure you'll be continue inventing things all the time. I see your systems, a lot of them are handmade. That probably keeps you very adaptable. Like you can adjust things on site. Yeah, I mean, we have to be responsive to being in an environment where we're innovating. And so suddenly we discover something's wrong, how do we fix it? And so we have to make it ourselves. And what's, what's really nice working here in center is that we're surrounded by people who fix things mm -hmm. and make things. Uh, because all of these tractors, all of these sprinklers, all of these things that are creating this agricultural landscape need to be fixed. And so a town like center is full of people who are fixing things constantly. So when I can't make something, or when something breaks and I can't fix it, I can just drive a very short distance and someone can. Mechanically inclined people here. Yeah, yeah. That's good experience they have, I guess, from having to deal with farming equipment and uh, work with their hands. I don't know if, are, do you have farming experience? I do, I grew up on a, I grew up on a cattle ranch. A ranch is different from a farm. Mm -hmm. So my definition is a, uh, a farm grows food for people and a ranch grows food for animals. Okay. Yeah. The equipment is becoming less serviceable, right? They're making it less... Uh... From what I understand, and I mean, I, I have that experience with automobiles. I mean, automobiles are less serviceable. Mm -hmm. I look under the hood of my truck, which is a new truck, and I don't know what's going on under there. All I see is plastic, and I have to remove the plastic. Yeah. I haven't gone that far yet, but yeah, they're less serviceable. And what's really nice about this machine uh, 
that I use for printing is that it's very serviceable. I mean, it's just really three axes of raw aluminum and a microchip controller board, you know? And so when we get into the realm of the controller board, it gets a little bit more complicated, but um, at least I know people who can fix it. As you grow and experiment with, uh, I mean, you're building a startup emerging objects, but you're not right now commercializing your startup heavily. You're not trying to sell uh, your systems uh, right now? Well, Emerging Objects is like a lab. So Emerging Objects isn't a startup company. Emerging Objects is more like a R&D lab cool. from which you know, we have produced um, patents, where we have produced uh, innovations that have led to other startup companies, that we've invented materials, we've invented processes and softwares. And so I think that, that 3D printing Earths in my opinion, has enough legs, as they say, that it might be able to run on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there another... What's the other startup that started with emerging objects and went fast? Well, uh, Forest is a company that was founded by myself and my emerging objects partner, Virginia Sanpatello, and Andrew Jeffrey, who had a 3D printed ceramics company called Figolo. And so together, Given our various experiment, uh, experiences, we formed um, Forest, mm -hmm. uh, forest.com, but we spell Forest, F-O-R-U-S-T, um, and so it's a company that 3D prints sawdust, and, and we have some really great um, capabilities for, for printing. Yeah, I like wood as a material for construction because it's warm and it's like audio is nice to touch it is much nicer than something uh, like stone or concrete mm -hmm. um, did you ever see the acetone printing wood cellulose with acetone no who did who a group in Sweden said that they were search plus they were called but they never actually produced anything but a rendering no no I haven't I, I had some friends from Sweden who were also experimenting with that but I kind of lignin and they did make one object that I know of that was really nice but I mean we're we're at the point with forest that we can produce tables and furniture and chair and has structural capabilities we can uh, do different finishes and colors and types of wood so that's that's pretty exciting but you're you're right I think that um, our bodies respond to materials in different ways uh, and different parts of our bodies respond to different materials in different ways. Uh, whether we're touching them or listening to them or seeing them, mm. their translucency, their opacity, their reflective qualities. And I think that wood and earth are some of the materials that we respond to the best uh, in different ways with our senses. And, and that's really important. And you know, one of my beliefs is that, uh, that concrete isn't a material that we respond to very well. Um, we like it for different reasons. We like its warmth and the way it looks. We like its ability to hold a cleanness and a certain longevity. But ultimately, there are also like, cultural associations with it and psychological associations with it that make it feel cold, that can really wear on our feet and our backs. And, and so there's, there's a lot of different reasons why we should be really thoughtful about the materials we use. 
not only in general, but in additive manufacturing as we start to develop ways to work with these materials over time. Mm -hmm. Have you considered how to design a livable structure out of Adobe? Like what considerations, how do you do it differently than a traditionally built house? Um, yes, I have, I have considered that a lot. Besides the Adobe house you live in, specifically with the printed Adobe design? Well, I've, I've you know, I've designed, I've designed Adobe houses. I wouldn't call them traditional because okay. they're modernist. Um, one in Marfa, Texas, that's, uh, that's, that's really beautiful, and, but it recognizes the distinctions between different materials and, and where those materials are placed. Is that different from an Earthship? How does that come into it's play? It's very different from an Earthship. An Earthship is a structure that's largely made out of trash. Okay. Tires and cans and bottles and... So the Adobe's not really a focus of Earthships, that's different? That's, it's very different. Adobe is they a building tradition... some Adobe and some Earthships, I guess. Yeah, they'll put some mud, but it's... Uh, an Earthship is a, is a building that's cut into the earth and it uses a lot of waste products. Mm. Um, as the building materials and so it's just like very highly organized garbage in some ways uh, in the ground um, but adobe is is earth and clay that has been formed and shaped in different ways sometimes it's compressed round earth is that sometimes it's made by hand and that's cob sometimes made into bricks and it's adobe there's lots of different ways uh, wattle and daub which is basically a woven network of of branches and uh, applying that into that weave of branches that becomes a, a, a kind of um, lattice for the earth to stick to. So adobe is the wrong nomenclature for this material because it's not a brick? Well, yes and no. I mean, um, adobe is both a brick that's made out of mud, but it's also the mud itself. Mm. Um, and so I consider it Adobe just because it's connected to my cultural mm -hmm. heritage. Um, cob might be considered Adobe uh, as a translation of that word cob into Spanish, but it's not formed into a brick. So, so yes and no. I mean, I, I th that's a good question, but I think there are many ways you can think about that word. The one way it's been thought about and is used commonly is as a style, as a way a building looks even if the building is made out of uh, wood frame and stuccoed, mm -hmm. that that's an adobe, but it's kind of an adobe style. But there's no reason why adobe has to look a certain way or take on a certain style necessarily. Sure. Because there's lots of different earthen buildings around the world that look very different. Yeah, classification's a tricky thing. Um, as when it's completed, it's hard to see how it was built, the details, especially if you finish it with the smooth stucco, adobe stucco. Um, I like the layers that leave the process exposed. You were talking about covering it up. Well, yeah, I mean, I, and we will, we will leave this exposed and I like it too. I like seeing uh, the textures and the shadows aesthetically, but I'm always also thinking about this question I, I raised earlier, how does it respond to a contemporary lifestyle? So if this, this obviously is an experience, but if we were making um, an overnight accommodations like this that had to be weather tight, 
uh, I might suggest, well, we can, we can apply an earthen plaster, a clay plaster, it could be a light clay plaster that leans towards white so that it's brighter in the space mm -hmm. and it feels a certain way, but it could still be made out of clay, out of raw clay. And so the, these are just the things that go through my head as I do these experiments. And I was just counting this morning as I drove by the property that has all my previous experiments, that there are nine experiments there that occurred over three years. And today, this, this summer, we're building eight objects that are larger than any of those in one summer. Mm -hmm. The eight here today? Yeah, the eight here, the Frontier Drive. And how tall will they be when they're complete? They'll be about 14 feet tall. It's very tall. Yeah. Almost tall enough to do two stories. Yeah. But they won't be. They won't be because these are meant to just frame the sky and be this experience that you can stay in uh, in different lengths of time. How do you see this technology advancing over the coming years? Is it something that should scale up? Are you talking about the earthen technology in particular printed or 3D earth. printing in general? 3D printed earth specifically in general? Well, I am hoping that I will be able to scale it up, not only in terms of uh, its speed and the quantity of projects I'm able to do, but also the size. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are a lot of there are, there are a lot of questions that need to be solved, but also there are a lot of answers to those questions in the traditions of building for 10,000 years in Adobe. So how do, we, how do we roof it? There's lots of answers. How do we finish it? How do we make a floor? How do we introduce plumbing and electricity? So a lot of those questions have been answered over time. And then, I, I, as I mentioned, I think the one thing that we have to really answer is how can it respond to contemporary lifestyle? And that has to do with what architects sometimes call program meaning the kinds of spaces and the size of spaces and the demands. Because we can look at programs of spaces in the past, like not so long ago, we'd have spaces like foyers and front porches and um, uh, kind of waiting rooms within houses and, and um, kitchens that may have several different compartments and layers to that kitchen, depending on the smells and the people who worked in the kitchen. and so our lives are very different today and so the buildings have to be have to be designed to respond to those kind yeah. of lives and some things have disappeared uh, in architectural spaces and some things have emerged and so I think the beauty of additive manufacturing is that it can be responsive to that quite quickly mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if a space demanded a curve it can respond to that if a space demanded uh, certain kinds of openings, it can respond to that very quickly without necessarily um, highly skilled labor being involved. I'm just imagining finishing it, like do you put a porcelain toilet in it? Um, yeah, why not? There, there are millions of adobe buildings around the planet that have porcelain toilets. In and you could finish it out and from the inside, not even really know it could have tile everywhere or however. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Imagine like that, and then you walk in, you have no idea you're in a Adobe structure anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes I actually feel like I'm misrepresenting Adobe by bringing it down to its bare essence. Mm. Um, because most Adobe's are quite finished and quite refined. The first home of the first lieutenant territorial governor of the state of Colorado was an Adobe building, and it's still here today. Um, and so, the you know the the oldest um, governmental building in the United States is made out of Adobe, and it still exists today. Which building is that? That's the Palace of Governors in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Wow. Um, there are airports made out of Adobe. There are embassies. There are museums made out of Earth. And so, you know, I'm I'm reducing it to like a really bare state. So when you talk about um, porcelain toilets or light fixtures or those kind of things, these aren't present in this structure. Um, but it's because these this is the, this is a proto architecture. Mm -hmm. These are these are prototypes for imagining the possibilities. And so, as I move forward, I hope to offer different ways of legitimizing the work. And I think legitimacy comes in different steps and different um, different kinds of legitimization, right? From toilets and the kind of finishes you'd expect in the bathroom, uh, but also. Um, the kind of cultural legitimacy, and I talked about structural legitimacy and zoning legitimacy, and those are things that we are doing here. Yeah, we are permitting this, and this has been engineered with a structural engineer. What type of permit? Is it a commercial permit? It uh, is a commercial permit because this is a commercial mm -hmm. development. As opposed to residential, like this building has a certificate of occupancy, probably will that get a certificate of occupancy? That's a very good question. I, be I believe so. Wow. Yeah. Will it have electricity? Yes. Cool. And it will have plumbing. Will that run in between the wall or are you cutting a hole through the wall? Um, what we will be doing is those will be embedded around the floors and there will be uplit. And so there's a everything is raised up on blocks because all the plumbing and electricity will run in that layer between what will be the new grade, the finished grade, uh, and what you see there. So you won't have to cut into the walls at all? Right. Nice. Yeah. Would that uh, detriment their structural integrity? No. It's very common. It's, it's not my favorite way of putting electricity and plumbing in, in the building, but uh, electrical is commonly put in adobe buildings by grinding an edge and placing that conduit or underground cable into the wall and then plastered over it's nice that it can be so malleable yeah that's the beauty of it you can chop into it you can fill it you can um, transform it what happens a lot of times over time is that um, new materials replace the traditional materials because there's a lack of knowledge or a mistrust mm -hmm for some reason. So you see plenty of times when a concrete block is filled into a wall where a piece needed to take out, taken out or eroded or something. Is that usually done by through ignorance? If they'd be better off replacing it with Adobe, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's not... I mean, I don't want to say it's ignorance so much as it is the loss of tradition and that, that knowledge being lost.
and so it's not it's not um, it's not ignorance per se, but it's this unfortunate transformation of um, a building culture that is based on capitalism and not on the traditions of building. I was I was telling someone just the other day that. If you look at a wall section of an adobe house, and you look at a wall section of a typical two by six frame building, a wall section of a traditional house might have a finished earthen surface that's very refined, the adobe is with adobe mortar that's earth, an interior finish of an earthen plaster that's very refined and very clean. So it's earth all the way through. If you think of a section of a two by six frame structure, you might have 14 different products from 14 different companies around the world yeah. that you're purchasing to make that. From the thin layer of paint, to the uh, joint compound, to the sheetrock, to the paper that covers the sheetrock, the gypsum, the screws that hold that together, the tape, the wood itself, the conduit, all these things, all the way to the outside, the, the vapor barrier, um, all doing their, their different kinds of performances relative to the building, but also a performance relative to uh, capitalism and the ability for 14 different companies to be able to sell those products. So what's your performance relative to capitalism in terms of it? Uh, I think the rotor stators are like maybe one of the most significant costs of the project, right? They are. What are the most significant costs of this project? The, the, well, those are the biggest expendable. You've been extremely pieces. efficient uh, getting equipment locally and all the stuff that you mentioned, you were able to use a concrete truck from the neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, get those things run on gasoline, hydraulic fluid, mm -hmm. oil. Um, we're using lumber um, to build some more scaffolding. Um, the most expensive thing that can't be seen is your team, who's highly specialized at this point. Uh, they're they would be really hard to replace, or it would just take time and training. It, yes and no. I mean, what we're doing is not um, extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's design involved, and then there's the production of the the tool paths. And uh, my teammate Logman is responsible for the production of the tool paths based on a system that I've been developing over years to think about how we design toolpaths rather than design forms. Mm -hmm. And wh while he is very good at it, I would say that it's not, he's not a computational specialist. I think it's something that is fairly common in architectural education today to do that sort of thing. And I, I think, you know, Logman is also a professor now. He's no longer a student. And he... So I'm very fortunate to have him. So there is a question about, you know, what happens in the future because uh, Logman is very special because he and I and everyone on our team has accepted responsibility for as many things as we can handle. So we're all willing to dig dirt and shovel mud and clean up messes and do all the dirty work. And I think that's the most important part of this team. Yeah. That 
everyone's willing to understand what needs to be done in order to realize this vision. That's good. That's annoying. You're hearing, do the, you're hearing the testing of the sound system. You think they'll be testing long? No. We were just testing the volume. That's good. As long as it's not music, it won't be a copyright strike. Oh, yeah. Well, it's film, so it still might be. <laughs> How did you end up with so many Instagram followers as a professor and researcher with these different uh, interests? So, so how did I get so many Instagram followers? Well, um, there, there's one real answer to that question. I was, but I'll give you a longer answer, which I, I was an early adopter of Instagram and I've been cool. using it for a very long time. Um, I don't know when my first posts were, but I'm guessing it's around 2009. I don't know how early that is to Instagram, but... I think it's early. That's a long time ago. And so, you know, an audience followed. I, I think that having students and cycling through a lot of people have given me the opportunity for those who are interested to follow. Uh, but the one real answer is that I stuck a pink teeter-totter through the border wall between the United States and Mexico. And I would say that I think that brought me 50,000 followers yeah. in one day. And uh, I've I, I maintained that. And you know, once an audience comes to you and they see what you're doing, then you're a known quantity. And then the other things I've been doing, I guess, have uh, been interesting enough where I didn't lose all those 50,000 followers. Um, That's been my experience too, where like it's usually something that gives the algorithm like the boost, uh, yeah. and then some people stick around for the long haul. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's why. I mean, that's the that's the big reason. So that project, the Pink Teeter Totter, allows people on the Mexican and U.S. side of the border to interact in a way across the. I guess, from from an outsider perspective, I see it, and I think like I think about the innocence of kids. Like they're not even really thinking necessarily about like what's on the other side or something they just like there's another kid on the other side and they're teeter-tottering and just playing as kids yeah it makes a, it it makes a connection between two people who are separated and i think it does a lot of other things that you know it demonstrates that there is a a generosity between two people like the the teeter-totter is a really interesting device i don't even know what to call it Equipment, right? That's why we consider it. it's playground equipment. It's not a toy. It's not a game. What is a teeter-totter? It's, it's interactive artwork and sculpture in that case. Generally, it's a... Uh, right, playground, playground equipment, right? That's what they call it. It's playground equipment. But it's, it's this beautiful kind of playground equipment that recognizes that if you want to have pleasure, it's entirely dependent on the person on the other side to offer that to you. Mm -hmm. The person on the other side could also cause you harm, right? They can jump off the teeter-totter and you go coming down really quickly. But there's an inherent generosity between people. Has anyone ever used a teeter-totter and that didn't end that way? <laughs> Do they just play nicely the whole time and got off the teeter-totter? Is it even fun that way? I don't know. It was fun. That's how I did it. I wouldn't want to hurt anybody on the other side. And I think, I mean, that's what I experienced that day. Yeah. Like, it, was, it was pure joy. And so there's a lot of symbolic things there that people have read into and, you know, the fact that you use the same kind of steel that makes the barrier to make the connection. Um, is it still up? 
No, it was only there for 40 minutes. Wow. And so it was just a, it was just a quick event um, that I never imagined would have that kind of impact around the world. And I was going to mention that, you know, this project and probably all the projects I do think about this context of the expanded borderlands. Um, and what I mean by that is that here in the San Luis Valley, this was the northernmost territory of Mexico. So the Arkansas River, which is just at the north end of the valley, on the other side of the pass, was the border between the United States and Mexico. This was Mexico. This was Spain. This was, uh, uh, and, and that, that, the remnants or legacy of that history is still visible in the landscape and the people and the language and the food. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned about the contemporary U.S. borderlands um, from the historic U.S.-Mexico borderlands. And that has a lot to do with um, loss, and it has a lot to do with the relationships between people. And, um, and so that's why I do a lot of this work. So the 3D printed Adobe is very connected to the teeter-totter in that way. These are cultural projects that are attempting to make these connections to tradition and to people um, that, have been, that have been separated or disconnected. To make the teeter-totter project happen, who did you have to ask permission to do that? No. You just did it. I just did it. You assembled the teeter-totter and uh, people saw from a distance, um, or did you no. tell people to come and check it out? I have been going to that spot since 2009, and it's a village called Anapra, which is a, it's on the outskirts of Juarez, mm -hmm. and it's built up against the wall. And when I went in 2009, there wasn't a wall there. There was just like a chain link fence, but it was patrolled. And so you could just cross pretty easily, but you, you didn't. And if you did, you would get caught by border patrol. And, um, and so I had been connecting with that community for a long time. And so I had written a book about the U.S.-Mexico border wall called Border Wall's Architecture. And the way I describe that book is it's a biography of the wall. And it talks about the wall, or the various kinds of walls, where they are, why they are there, what is their history, what do they do, what are the problems with it. And there's a series of illustrations in that book. I call, I call them illustrations. Some people call them designs or proposals. But they're not designs necessarily. They're ways of telling the stories of the complexity of that wall. And one of the stories is about labor, and trade balances and imbalances about equity and inequity between wealth and poverty. And that is told through this illustration I did of a teeter-totter on the border, imagining the border as a, as a kind of metaphorical fulcrum for those imbalances and balances. Um, and there was a moment where um, we decided in my studio that let's actually create this object the teeter-totter, let's bring it into the world mm -hmm. and make it real. And it was just a proposition to make it real, like what would it take to make it real? And it was about measuring, like how long would Border Patrol arrive and tell us, oh, you can't do that. And so I, I literally went to the border and carried large things to the wall <laughs> to see how long it would take for Border Patrol cool. to arrive. And I did that on both sides because they're actually more concerned about what arrives in the wall on that side and their cameras that monitor both sides 
and they can watch that and they can drive up. It's about 11 minutes. So there was a moment, um, and it, we're approaching the anniversary of it here in July, where there was so much discussion about child separation and the continued construction of more walls. Um, and I think there was just this national tension about it. Whether you were for walls or against walls, there was this building anxiety about it that we thought it would be important to, you know, sort of test this question of this making connections between people on both sides. So you had mentioned for the teeter project, you measured the time you had as 11 minutes, but it was there for 40 minutes. So when they stopped by, were they cool about it or? Yeah, I think they were, well, I don't know if cool is the word, but they asked what we were doing. And we said, well, we're having an event with the families. And so they just pulled over and they watched. And they then, see kids having fun on the teeter-totter. Yeah. And I'm not sure it breaks any laws. Um, there's one border patrol agent who was in the news who said, uh, and he, he was he was not a fan of it, but he said, well, this is like sitting on a wall at a courthouse. This is public space. This is a federal project. So I think it... it um, Blurred, you know, there's a lot of blurred boundaries there. Yeah, that's the silly thing about laws. Like, in a country, a free country, they still find ways to manipulate the laws to kind of sometimes do whatever people in power want to do. Yeah. Uh, but it's nice they didn't arrest you. Uh, yeah. I don't know what they would have, maybe, mess did you drill into the wall? No, we didn't. You we didn't, didn't tamper damage anything. or temper anything. We just. It was designed so there's a there's an angle at the base that holds the lower part of the wall and it just slipped right over it mm -hmm. and then the structure was attached to that. Um, so you yeah. disassembled it peacefully and everything, uh, everyone went... Yeah, no one ever told us to take it down, no one ever, you know, basically the kids got tired of writing teeter-totter and so it was like, okay, it's time to end this event and there were hugs and it was amazing and it was fun mm -hmm. and... And then um, there was a, then I posted to my Instagram account and it seemed to, well, it did blow up. The news networks were all over, people were uh, I got sharing. I got calls, I must have received several thousand calls, DMs, emails. Wow. Uh, yeah. What did they want to say to you? They want to know what this is all about. Why'd you do it? What is this? What there was there was a lot of people who were just like really moved and touched and connected with it because I think during that time, especially and it still exists today, it was a very divisive society. Divisive not only between countries but between people of different religions, people with different uh, sexual identities, people of uh, different backgrounds. So it was just a world that had been divided in many different ways. And here was a moment where we showed this promise that connections could still be made across boundaries. One of my favorite parts of visiting emerging objects and your prints, you have so much tied to your culture and your identity in this region. Bringing people together, in a way, dilutes that. So how do you 
bring people together while still preserving the cultural, individual cultural identities like yours. You're saying bringing people together dilutes cultural identities. Well, how do you per, how do you bring how do you, can both live it simultaneously? Can you bring people together and still preserve the the strong cultural identities? Traditionally, these cultures weren't interacting with other cultures as much. And no, was, that's not true. Okay, I mean cult, cultures. This especially in, in these zones of of um, like strong cultures exist where there are zones of interactivity mm -hmm. between cultures. And so, as I mentioned, that prior to the Spanish Empire, this was a landscape that was occupied by a number of people with very different languages, with very different cultural identities. Mm -hmm. The Ute, the Kiowa, the Apache, the Pueblo, who didn't necessarily get along or did get along, that traded and shared and produced very unique cultures that depended on their different interactions with each other. Um, and like I said, sometimes violent, sometimes friendly. The Spanish Empire introduced another uh, cultural interaction to that, maybe more than one, right? It introduced not only uh, whatever Spanish means, but also everything that came along with that. Uh, Sephardism, Moorish, Jews, African slaves. The Mexican uh, colonization did the same. The United States, uh, territorial expansion into this landscape did the same. So traditions are always evolving, mm -hmm. and cultures are always evolving. So um, what we connect to and what we hold on to and what is lost is what these projects are, are about. And so mm -hmm. bringing people together actually strengthens and reinforces that rather than preserves it. It's not, this, is, this isn't, while I described it as an island, it's an, it's an island of possibility. It's not something dead in formaldehyde, it's something alive. Right. Okay, that's a great answer. Um, the historical reference, I my only concern is it might be dated because the internet brings about uh, the, a new threatening monoculture. Um, I don't know. I mean, the internet for me has brought people from all over the planet together that I've learned from and shared and made friends with. And yeah, me too. Yeah, and so I think it's it's this other, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I think things can homogenize and things can diversify, but I think it's just that pieces and parts of culture uh, influence and affect us. Yeah. And it's, it's knowledge and it's transformative. And so, in a way, like, a, a historic drive-in theater is part of the phenomena of film. It's the phenomena of automobiles. It's the phenomena of that culture creating something entirely new, right? And so who would ever imagined that at the invention of the automobile in the late 19th, early 20th century, that we would someday drive to watch movies? Mm. And here it is, and that culture disappeared. And so we don't drive to watch movies anymore for various reasons. And we could say the television did that. We could say daylight savings time did that. We could say the internet has is transforming. But now here's a place where a new kind of culture is growing. And two weeks ago, they had their first launch where people and communities from all over the valley came here to sample foods and to sample film and to meet each other and connect in different and new ways. And 
I think those kind of moments of interaction are like just beautiful moments of reinforcing culture, but also sharing and learning. And I think the introduction of a 3D printer with Adobe is just that as well. It's something new, like you're bringing two things together and you're creating this hybrid that gives birth to new knowledge. Yeah, I'm trying to get you to preach something, but you're, you don't want to preach, it seems like. You don't want to tell other people, uh, you're not trying to enforce what people should do or something. No, I'm not evangelical about this at all. At all. I mean, as much as I love Adobe and as, as many evangelists as there are about Earth, I think it has its place in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think it's my responsibility not to evangelize it and say what's right, but to demonstrate its beauty. And if others want to participate in that, they, they can, but I, I'm not, um, you know, e evangelicism and colonialism are kind of similar. And so I'm not out to, to be colonialist about this and push this on people. Mm -hmm. I'm about to invite people to yeah. participate in it and witness its beauty and, and then make decisions about how they want to move forward. So if people see this, they want to get involved, maybe they want to buy a printer, buy a house, or participate in some way with you, uh, how should they contact you? Are those opportunities available? Yeah, well, if they, if they want to buy a printer, it's been commercialized by 3D Potter, and they can go to 3dpotter.com. If they want to learn more about emerging objects, they can go to emergingobjects.com. If they want to follow me on Instagram, my handle is R-R-A-E-L. It's a good follow. <laughs> Thanks. And um, and you can DM me there if you. I'm a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and um, you can see my profile there and contact me through there as well. Are there any roles you guys are looking for on your team, or any roles? Um, people who are open-minded and willing to get dirty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when you go back to school in the fall, uh, what courses are you teaching? Um, well, I'm starting to be the chair of the Department of Art Practice. Okay. And so I'm taking on a new role in the art department, but I'm also continuing to teach classes at a design studio. And so the design studio will look at the relationship between architecture and indigenous slavery in Southern Colorado. And I'm teaching one course which is a very short course, it's one hour a week, called 250 Things Every Architect Should Know. Is it about the slave homes or the slave, the way they built homes? Well, this is a, I just opened up a huge topic here, but um, in New Mexico and Southern Colorado, uh, there was a practice of taking small children and uh, giving them to families um, and they were raised as servants in households in, in New Mexico and Southern Colorado. And that continued into the 20th century. And so I've been working with um, a scholar in New Mexico, Esteban uh, Galvez Rael, who's actually related to me, uh, who's an expert on this topic. and. Um, I've been working on the preservation of a house where this documentation was written mm -hmm. in the 1860s. Um, and so this is a preservation project. It's a project about telling and sharing the story. And when I told you 
that there are lessons to be learned from the historic borderlands and apply them to the contemporary borderlands. One of those was about child separation. And in the historic borderlands, which is this landscape today, children were being separated from their families. Mm -hmm. And today, in the contemporary borderlands, children are being separated from their families. And um, so I will ask students to think about how this particular property um, can be conceived of as a site for reconciliation, for healing, for understanding, for understanding these stories. And it's also a building that's made out of earth. Who lived in the house of preservation? Uh, the house was originally lived in by the first territorial governor of the state of Colorado, okay. someone named Lafayette Head, who, after the Mexican-American War, uh, brought families from Abiquiu, New Mexico, and Ojo Caliente to establish a settlement called Conejos in, so here just uh, in the adjacent county. And is he a positive figure, or was he a slave owner? <clears throat> well, he, he's a, a figure with uh, a very complicated and complex background. He grew up in Missouri. He joined the U.S. military. He fought in the Mexican-American War. He settled in New Mexico and married a Hispanic woman in New Mexico in a town, Abiquiu, which is a town that is comprised of detribalized Native Americans who become Hispanicized, um, who comes to Colorado after the Mexican-American War and settles this settlement called Conejos, who does have children living in him that he quote-unquote adopted, but who are his servants. Um, but he cares for dearly? Or unclear? Both and no. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite complicated. There are accounts where some of his family members who are from Missouri visit him and are um, incensed by the treatment of some of these children. He is also an advocate for the abolition of, of indigenous slaves. And he writes the document documenting all of the captives held in the two counties. Wow. Except for those living in his household. But some of those continue uh, a connection to being raised in that family as family members. And so it's, it's complicated and complex because as someone who's opposed to slavery is also doing it because he is, has political aspirations and he's attempting to be the first governor of the state of Colorado. Uh, and he decides that he runs on that platform, uh, which he doesn't win, but he's appointed the lieutenant governorship and so, again, it's a, it's a complicated and complex history of many different cultures and identities coming together and the architecture that uh, houses that complex. Is there anywhere on the internet people can go to learn more about your work in that space? Um, the state of Colorado, well, let me back up here. There's an organization called Colorado Preservation Inc that designates the most endangered sites in the state of Colorado. And last year, they designated that property one of Colorado's most endangered places. And so that's Colorado Preservation Inc. So if you Google Colorado Preservation Inc., you can learn more. They did a, a beautiful documentary about that site and that work. Cool. And as a last question, is there any way that 
I know in many ways the adobe structures, the way the people built traditionally, um, but in the future, will you bring that link closer together from the printed adobe to the historical? Uh, is there anything planned to uh, further demonstrate that? To, to demonstrate this link between uh, 3D printed adobe and traditional adobe? Yeah, it's hard to put into words exactly the link I'm talking about, but it's uh, apparent in the uh, teeter-totter project and just linking things that are... Like you were talking about how these communities, they're sometimes separate, but their relationship affects both parties. And uh, the technology and the historical culture is there a way that you in the future will... Uh, this project brings those things together, but potentially even in, in a different or uh, different way. Is there other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I understand the question. I mean, the way I would answer it is that I see this as part of a lineage. There's there's a lot. There's an evolving line of the way people have built with this material, and this is just a continuation of that line. Mm -hmm. I didn't do I didn't do much to it other than put a, a little robot into it. And so it's just part of that line. Other people have put windows into it. Other people have put doors. Other people have put in plumbing. And so this is part of an evolving way of building. And so I think what I could imagine happening in the future is that there are ways of incorporating more traditional practices into this. I mentioned like finishes. These are adobe buildings can be really refined and elegant. And again, this is a, a very raw kind of experience. And so I imagine using these as templates for demonstrating those other much more refined and finished techniques of Adobe that I think people are unfamiliar with because it hides the rawness. It masks the rawness. And so um, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that we could not be sitting in an Adobe building right now, except that we know it's not. But we can have a very refined, palette of finishes in an earthen building as well. Maybe I, I can show that, but maybe you're talking more about the historical connection or... I wasn't talking, and nothing in particular, maybe one thing could be the communal aspect of historical societies and their architecture. Um, yeah, you know, one, one thing I have done, and I can imagine doing it with these buildings, is um, Colorado Preservation Inc. and I hosted an earthen plaster workshop to help restore that um, it, it's actually a Ute Indian agency and home of the first lieutenant governor cool. and so we did we, we had an open call, it was a free workshop and people from all over the world in fact came there was about 35 people or so and they came for a two day session of learning these traditional techniques of, of plastering and so I believe that we can do them on these structures as well and that would be a good opportunity to test finishes and think about how those two um, building techniques come together. And it will be part of an evolution of this process that moves into those realms where um, we're thinking about refining this and making these much more suitable for, for housing, for example. Well, thank you for sharing your story with me today and letting me film your uh, progress. And I can't wait to someday come back and see how much more progress you've made. Yeah, thank you so much. My name is Adam Gildar, and I'm the program director here at the Frontier Drive-In. And to tell a little bit about what the project is, 
is that this is an old 1955 drive-in theater that has been reimagined as an outdoor theater and really an experiment in hospitality and arts programming. I came here in 2015 and the site was abandoned and in the last six years we've been working to bring it back to life and one of the ethoses of the project is to combine tradition and innovation and so you have this historic site that's part of the American uh, sort of mythology of cinema um, and very nostalgic in that way and then we've been thinking about how to update that for the 21st century. You know, how does a drive-in become relevant again? And so one of the projects that we're uh, focused on is the actual film program. And so we've converted the drive-in aspect into an outdoor theater. Uh, and so you have outdoor uh, sound and the ability to sit outside under the stars and watch a film. And we're going to be showcasing uh, film from the history of cinema as well as experimental contemporary content and independent content. Uh, one of the other things that we're really interested on site is the architecture that was existing here and then thinking about new, uh, new buildings that you know can also um, integrate with what was existing. And so we have the original actual screen from 1955. The sign when you come in is the original neon sign that's been uh, you know brought back to life but it's all you know, historically accurate. And then we start to get into buildings that um, transform and have hybrid elements from the past and the contemporary moment. So the snack bar is actually the, the structure of the original building, but is reclad in new materials and has new functionality as a dining area and chef's kitchen. And then uh, another big innovation on site is that we've shifted this from also not just a theater, but a place that you can stay overnight. So where we're sitting right now is actually a steel master shed, which is a building that's an industrial uh, prefabricated structure, often used for storing agricultural products and because we're in a region where farming is uh, one of the main um, activities that happens here. So people normally store like, potatoes or alfalfa or anything that they're growing here, or it could be your tractor, uh, really anything, and we're, uh, we've converted it into a living quarters, into an overnight accommodation. And then we also have yurts where people can stay overnight. Uh, so the thought is, you know, come and see a movie, stay, and then engage with the landscape. And then that brings us to what I think is one of our truly like exciting and clearly on the um, the edge of innovation and tradition is the project that Ron here is creating with 3D printed Adobe. And so, um, you know, when I first came to the project, well, I should say I came back to the project in 2019 as the director. I had heard about what Ron was doing um, with emerging objects down in La Florida and was just so excited to see something like that happening at all, but particularly here, and uh, was just excited to know that he was here and wanted, if we could do uh, a project, that was the first choice to be able to collaborate with somebody uh, that was taking you know, this ancient material and reviving it uh, through this contemporary process of 3D printing. Um, and they're really beautiful and I think they live in this sort of hybrid space between, you know, art and architecture. Um, and they have a lot of really incredible, you know, implications. And it just so happens they were also calling it, you know, the Mud Frontiers and we're at the Frontier Drive-In. So there's these really wonderful uh, sort of natural parallels that uh, the more and more I'm here, I start uh, 
or I try and pay attention to. So Ron uh, and Emerging Objects were really gracious and decided to say yes to uh, an overture of, you know, come out here and see if this could be the next site for, you know, the experimentation and the process that they had started. And now uh, it's actually coming true. It's like we're just a short while away from, I think, unveiling what will still, I think, be the largest 3D printed Adobe series of structures in the world, at least for a time. Well, I didn't realize that was the implication of this project. Will these be available on Airbnb? Or how will you, can people buy stuff from your business? <laughs> so you can uh, stay here in uh, these structures, in the SMS and then the yurts. Ron can tell you a little bit about um, the sort of functionality of those spaces, but they will be an amenity on site. Um, but in the beginning, they'll just be something if you rent one of these spaces, you can have access to. And if somebody wants to come see a movie or something, should, where do they follow you? Where do they? Yeah, right. How do you find us? So we're online. Uh, find us on social media at Frontier Drive-In with two N's because um, you can stay here. And the same uh, is our website, FrontierDriveIn.com. Um, but yeah, we're really excited to bring people in from outside of the valley to experience what you know, we found to be a really layered and um, significant landscape and cultural uh, area and region. And then also to experience these structures that are going to be like nothing else I think anybody's ever been in.